You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thanks, Josh. Well, I want to start this morning having you uh, hold something in your mind. Uh, I want you to think of an event, a time, uh, an occurrence that, that you were most excited about, or maybe currently are most excited about in your life. It could be, uh, yeah, like I said, current or past. It could be uh, a job, maybe one you're looking forward to or one that you're looking forward to getting out of. It could be a graduation. Um, it could be a vacation. It could be a, a baby. Uh, just hold that in your mind. What's one thing that you have been or are most excited about in your life? Something coming, something you're anticipating. I oh, got it. All right. Uh, now share it with your neighbor. Yeah, actually, like share it right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk to him about it. Do you want to share it? You want to sh- no? <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Good job. Great job. I want to know what that one is over there. Yeah. Shout it out. No, just kidding. Um, uh, one, a softball, one that stands out to me as I was thinking about uh, this season was uh, when I was anticipating my, my wedding day, right? Um, and uh, wait, waiting for something that you know is coming, that's like solidified, that is just, you're just waiting on it, it does something to us, doesn't it? It creates kind of a tension of, of different kind of emotions and experiences, right? On the one hand, you have this like hope-filled, like longing, groaning even maybe sometimes, right? Like, man, I am just so excited for this thing to get here. Can't it just be that day? Can't that thing just be here? Um, in, our, in, our, in our wedding, when Jen and I were getting married, it was like, engagement's just kind of weird. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, but yeah, we were, just counting the, we, were, we were counting the days. Like, like sometimes it felt like, oh, we're excited. And other times it was like, can it just be here? Um, this longing, right? Um, but also, it does something else. So it does something in a longing for the future, but, but it also gives you something in the present. It changes you in the present moment in, in a way that's not just longing, but I think it gives you a present joy, a present contentment, a, a, a present gratitude. And I actually experienced that, um, man, because we were, we were engaged, and this day coming was, was more or less certain, right, of getting married. I, I had a lot more present gratitude in my life. I had a lot more present joy in my life. I had a lot more present contentment in my life. Not that getting married was the, the one hope for my life, but it, it helped me in the moment to be more joyful, contentment, and, and have gratitude. And, and if you've experienced longing, waiting for something you really are anticipating or, or excited about, you've probably experienced something similar. In Advent season, basically the celebration of Jesus' coming, it is meant to evoke the same kind of uh, tension, even emotional tension in us. Advent should be marked both by tension of, of joyful contentment and, and excitement and a, a hope-filled longing and maybe even groaning at times. Uh, where the, the first Advent we celebrate is, is Christ's coming, the first Advent of Him coming and accomplishing His work on the cross, raising from the grave, gathering us to Himself. But 
Also, we should have a hope-filled longing for the second advent, when Jesus actually comes back fully to bring His good reign, His good rule into our lives and this whole broken world that we live in. And so, uh, to dive into this tension, it's helpful to look past just um, one portrait of Jesus, or, or just the newborn uh, Jesus, although that is actually very helpful, but we want to push past, like, the, you know that kind of irreverent Talladega Nights prayer, like eight pounds, six ounce, baby Jesus, golden fleece, omnipotent, even with your little baby hands. Anybody remember that? Very irreverent prayer. I don't need to keep going. Um, but that's why we're in the Psalms, because we want to look at a, a little bit of a fuller picture or portrait of the Messiah that we're celebrating and longing for his coming. And I'm really excited to dive, in, dive into Psalm 110, because this Psalm is so unique. Uh, Psalm 110 is the most referenced, most alluded to, most quoted psalm in the New Testament. So the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament thought it was really important to help us understand who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus actually thought it was important. He uses Psalm 110 in his life on earth to describe himself. And the focal point, one of the reasons I love Psalm 10 is Psalm 110 is the focal point kind of is around this mystery man. His name is Melchizedek. Uh, and this mystery man is going to kind of, we're going to kind of go on a journey through the whole Bible from Genesis to the Psalms to Hebrews and all the way to the end of the Bible at Revelation, tracking this guy Melchizedek. And um, he's going to give us what, the reason why we're looking at this guy, this, uh, who you may have heard or may have not heard his name before, is to see the wonder of the diverse portraits of the Messiah. Because through studying this Psalm, we're going to see that the Messiah, Jesus, is both humble and high. He's both ruling and he's both and he's serving he's victorious and he's meek he's conquering and he's also laying his life down and so as we go through this psalm i really want you to see that our priest king uh, the name of the sermon is just our priest king but our priest king i hope you get this idea fulfills all of our current needs so we can have contentment but he also ha- he also fulfills fully our future longings and this psalm breaks down into three really easy points. So I'm going to say our, this, this three points that we're going to dive into is our Emmanuel, God with us, is the sovereign king. Secondly, he's a perfect priest. Thirdly, he's the victorious warrior. Now, there's no other psalm where, before we get to that first point, there's no other psalm where the author is, is more important. Knowing who the author is carries so much weight. Uh, if you've read the psalms, like me, you probably, there's a little bit of pretext in cursive like before verse 1 of most of the Psalms. And it says the author, and then it'll say some funny, like sometimes it'll say some funny Hebrew word, like, oh, it's modeled after this Hebrew word. Uh, it, and we're like, well, uh, there's some musical term that, that most people don't know what it is, uh, including myself. And so oftentimes I find myself skipping that little pretext, but this pretext is very important for Psalm 110. And like many Psalms, it starts like this. It says, a Psalm of David. Now here's why this is such a big deal. You have to look at the first part of verse 1. Verse 1 says, so it's David writing, and then he says, the Lord says to my Lord. Okay, a little confusing. The Lord says to my Lord. So there are three, if you're counting, three parties in this verse. One, you have uh, David, the writer of the psalm. Two, you have the Lord. That's usually in your Bible, and actually up there, it's, it's, if you see, it's all caps. And then my Lord. So, so you have three parties. Who are these three people? Almost every psalm is a conversation between just a psalmist, the writer, praying to God. So it's like two parties. This is a three-party thing, though. In this rare psalm, King David is just a non-participant. He basically is just observing 
uh, he's basically recording a conversation for us. And who is this conversation between? In many of your Bibles, like I just said, the, the Lord, the first one, is actually all caps. What that stands for is that's the Hebrew word for Yahweh, meaning Almighty God. This is the highest like, name for God that is in the Bible. But then Jesus says, this Lord says to my Lord. And so the big question is, who is this my Lord This in the Hebrew, my Adonai? I mean, David is like the king of Israel. There's no one really that ranks above him. So who is his Lord? Any guesses? Anybody? You're good, Angel. Um, my, my son, we're um, going through daily like Bible time or with the family, and, and I always ask him like, what did what did you what did we talk about yesterday? And do you know what the word he always says is? Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, you're kind of right, but you're kind of not right. Like I'm not, you know what I mean? I mean, yes, like. Um, and so we're looking at kind of Jesus, but we're looking at the, the Messiah. This is the eternal and divine Son of God um, before, before the incarnation. And so really what this conversation is that we're looking into is we're getting an inside view into the Trinitarian God. The, the Spirit of God is like revealing to us, reve- revealing to David really, and then to us, this intimate conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And if you wonder if I'm like importing in the Holy Spirit in a weird way there, Jesus actually said that. Jesus said in Mark 12, he quoted this verse. The Lord says to my Lord, and about that verse, he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared these words. The Lord said to my Lord. So the Holy Spirit is kind of opening a door into this holy conversation, a holy and sacred conversation for us. It's almost like back in the land, the, the landline phone days, it would be like, you would, when you would like pick up the phone to like listen in to someone's conversation. Um, and this happened to me all the time. This is dating myself, but I would like, sometimes if I was talking to, like I was in high school, I'd be talking to a girl and I would just hear this like slight click or the slight like something. And I'm, mom, is that you? Like get off the phone. It makes me really sad to, to even share that illustration in some ways because so many of you have never experienced any of that. Like, and it makes me really sad because it's just, it's a whole cultural experience that you've missed out on, on the whole landline, parents listening in. And I'm really sad that I don't get to do it with my kids, honestly. There's got to, they got to come up with like an app for that. You know, you can like listen in to your, anyways, I'm sure there is actually. Anyways, basically what's happening, the reason I share that is, is basically the Holy Spirit is like picking up the phone for us to listen in to this conversation between God the Father speaking to God the Son. And, and friends, in saying that, I, I really want you to understand how we should really treasure this intimate look into the mysterious and intimate connection between the persons of the unified God. And so as we unpack this privileged conversation, you know, we ask that God would help us to understand it and apply it. So uh, the first point I want to see and I want to unpack for this conversation is that our Emmanuel is the sovereign king. And we're going to see that in verses 1 through 3. You're going to see really, really in these verses, you'll see three really clear promises that God the Father is going to make to God the Son. And I'm just going to break down those three promises. So the first is uh, that the Father says to the Son is, number one, sit at my right hand. Really clear, verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's verse one. 
So what does this mean, sit down at my right hand? Um, I don't want all the lefties in the room to feel like shade uh, towards being a lefty. You're special, you're unique, we love you. Really what this means is uh, uh, my right hand man. This, this phrase is meant to confer equality, honor, victory, dominion, and, and rest. Um, the father is inviting the son to sit down on the heavenly throne that he sits in. And um, have you ever been to someone's home that they have like a seat of honor? Like maybe it's around the dinner table. The one I thought of is, is I, I had a friend that just, they had a huge like lazy boy in their living room. And that was like the seat of honor. And if you got invited to go sit down in the seat of honor, it was a big deal, right? Uh, in the lazy boy in the living room. For, for me, if you've been to my house, the seat of honor is, is like the, the uh, reclining chair next to the fireplace. And if you come over and I invite you to the seat of honor to like kick back by the fire and have some tea, I really like you. Uh, I really think a lot about you. Um, and uh, that's kind of what the Father is doing. He is saying, come in, sit in the place of honor. And um, how are you feeling? Think about this lazy boy illustration. If you walk into someone's seat of honor, you sit in their lazy boy, and then what's the thing you do next with the lever? You pull the lever, your feet go up, and you're just like, because if you know, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know, you got you to gotta try it. You got to find yourself some with a lazy boy, or just go to a store and go sit in one. But how are you feeling in that moment? Are you, are you stressed and anxious? And No, no you, you are, you're good. You're content. Uh, the work is done. You're, you're at rest when you're kicking your feet up in the lazy boy. And that's really what the picture we're meant to get is Jesus Christ, the Son, has completed the task. He's sitting on the throne in confident calm as he waits. And he's calmly upholding the universe, Hebrews 1 says, by the word of his power. And he's waiting for the second part of this verse. It says, until the Father makes his enemies his footstool. Until basically uh, the, the, uh, the enemies get put under his feet, under his feet that are up in the lazy boy. And so, though God is reigning and in control, we know that to be true, we still experience collateral damage all the time in our life, don't we? Of the battle unfolding around us. We see it in, in the wars of nations, and we see it in the war in our relationships, in our marriages. Uh, we experience it when we're sinned against, and we experience uh, this as you struggle with sin inside of you that hurts and wounds the people you love. But this verse is saying the end is still certain, even though the battle is going on, because God is the one fighting. Every enemy, every evil, sin, Satan, and death itself will be conquered and put under the feet of this sovereign king. And friends, each of us experiences collateral, tumult, struggle from the battle in our lives. And, and this verse, and a beautiful one in Colossians, actually gives us an invitation amongst that battle, amongst that pain, amongst that struggle to, to look up. Listen to this verse in Colossians 3, verses 1 to 3. If you then, Christian, have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Look at this seated at the right hand of, the God, of God, remember? He says this, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are of the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Did you hear that, Christian? Your, your life is hidden in Christ. Where? On the throne, where, where Christ is calmly in the lazy boy. Since the Emmanuel is your representative, you can actually have his same confident 
calm. And, and Colossians 3 is, in a sense, almost doing like a little bit of like a Christian meditation exercise for us of what we're meant to do amidst the anxiety and strife and battles in our life that we feel. And I actually want to just even just try that for a moment. I, I want to take you somewhere you don't want to go for a minute. Uh, can you just, um, you can do eyes open, eyes closed, but can you just for a minute think about that thing? That unresolved thing, that thing that is causing you anxiety, the thing that is causing you most stress, the thing that is unnerving you, the thing that is a battle warring in you, the, the person in your life that feels like just lack of resolution, the, the conflicts that might be going on. I want you just to pick out that one thing for a moment and hold it in your mind. I'm trying to just stick to just one, but stick to one. And here's what Colossians is inviting us to do. Hold that in your mind. Colossians is saying this, this thing is, is, is it's not invalidating. It's, this, this thing is hard and, and messy. But he's saying in, in this battle, in this struggle, in this trial, in this tumult, what you're to do is to look up. You're to look up at the Son, at the Messiah, the Sovereign King, seated, reigning, ruling, calm, confident, upholding the universe by the word of His power. And then you're meant to look at this Sovereign King. You're meant to look at this Messiah and see yourself with Him. Your life is hidden with Him. Look at Him in comparison to that struggle. Look at him in comparison to that person, his approval rather than theirs. Look at his oversight, his calmness, his confidence, his mightiness. <laughs> and that thing doesn't disappear, but man, it should make it a lot smaller. It should bring you peace and confidence. And so when we're in the struggle, we, we look up to the throne. We picture ourselves behind, beside him. Does that make sense? I think this is something, a regular rhythm that we're meant to do as Christians, honestly. So that's point one. Point two, or, the, or, or first promise, second promise to this king is rule in the midst of your enemies. Verse two says, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule amidst your enemies. So it's saying the enthroned king, though, is not inactive. Jesus is not disengaged in the battles that rage around us. Though enemies abound, Jesus is unfazed, unthreatened, um, and we see this during Jesus' life on earth. He was hated immensely by religious leaders and by others, but his mission was never phased. It was always sure. And the early church experienced this a lot. They experienced really hardcore persecution. The gospel spread like wildfire in the whole known world. And today we still see that working in so many contexts. Um, the church in Iran, a country where the gospel is opposed very sharply, uh, according to... Uh, one publisher, according to Operation World, Iran has the fastest growing evangelical movement in the world by the numbers. Uh, we've, we've sent out a, a missionary couple to Japan, which actually is the second least reached uh, people in the world uh, by, by, by number of people, a place that is not super, it's really apathetic to the gospel. And, and there are more people, um, I actually talked to our missionaries uh, there a couple months ago, and they were saying, there, right now, there are more people wanting to come read the Bible, wanting to hear about Jesus, wanting to learn how to follow Christ uh, than they have time to follow up with. And so 
the king is moving. His mission is moving around the world. Uh, the mission of the church will never be thwarted because our king, it's our, really our king's mission. And nothing will keep his bride from winning the battle. And so, brother and sister, if, if, I want you to hear, if you're on mission in your life, you will have some type of opposition come in your life at some point. And I don't know about you, but when I experience any kind of opposition, I feel defeated and deflated very quickly. It's really easy to feel that way. Uh, you might feel fearful that uh, in, in your school or your work or your family or your friends to speak up on behalf of Jesus is really hard or, or, or oppositional. Uh, you might feel some opposition in just living out the, the principles of, of God's Word. And we're meant to look at this sovereign king and take courage and say, hey, he's ruling no matter what comes against him. He, his mission will be fulfilled. He will keep moving forward and he lives in you. He's with you. The third promise is an army of volunteers will join him on the battlefield. So verse 3 says the, the people, or sorry, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. So this is looking forward. It's saying the king is going to have an army. And who is this army? It says those that offer themselves freely. The language literally means people that offer themselves as like free will offerings. They give all of themselves. This is back to the language of Romans 12 where Paul says, uh, to Christians, that we're meant to present our whole bodies, all of us, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And what this is saying is you don't get drafted unwillingly into the army of this king, but uh, you offer yourself joyfully into this uh, band of uh, brothers and sisters. And I've, I've been really stuck, in a good way, on this. What is the distinguishing mark of this army? Did you see it? It says holiness, not like strength, knowing everything, having your Bible known really well, like going to church every week, holiness. They're wearing holy garments. The, the army fatigues or the uniforms of the king's army are holiness. What do you mean? Purity, goodness, uh, rightness, lightness. Just put ness on the end of everything. But think about this. Why do we need uniforms? Think about a sports team. Why do they wear uniforms? It's, it's to distinguish them from the other team, to set you apart so you know what team you're on, right? And so the, old, the question, I think, as I read this text for me has been, Christian, do, does your life look distinct, separate from the world, from those around you that don't know Christ? Because church, church would you see that your final destiny that this promise is saying is a people set apart, distinct from the world in purity and goodness and rightness and light, wearing uniforms of holiness, clothes that the king has purchased and given to you. And, and you might say, well, how does that future end affect me now? And I love what J.C. Ryle, he kind of does a thought experiment to answer that question. Listen to what he says. He says, suppose for a moment that you were allowed to enter heaven without holiness, what would you do? What possible enjoyment could you feel there? To which of all the saints would you join yourself? And by whose side would you sit? Their pleasures are not your pleasures. Their taste are not your taste. Their character is not your character. How could you possibly be happy in heaven if you had not been holy on earth? 
And so, brother and sister, your, your holiness is meant to be a distinguishing mark, even a weapon by which you wage the battle for this king. Your victory over sin sets you apart from the world. Your, your living set apart sheds, sheds light in dark places for others. And friends, when you and I waffle and get really mushy in the middle between holiness and worldliness, what we're doing is we're jumbling up our uniforms. I went to Virginia Tech. Um, my, uh, my sister went to Alabama. Any Alabama fans? You got a couple too. Um, and so, yeah, very different schools, different places. They usually never play each other in football. Uh, but one year, when, when my sister and I were students there, they did. So one fall, it was in Atlanta. We, me, my sister, and my, two, and my parents um, traveled to Atlanta to go to this game. And my parents are like, who do we root for, right? Which team are we on? And they're like, well, we're kind of on both because we've sunk tens of thousands of dollars towards both these schools. So we feel very invested in both of them. So what they did is they thought it would be cute uh, to take an Alabama jersey and a Virginia Tech jersey and like cut it down the middle and then sew them back together, but it's like half and half. You know what I mean? It's like half Virginia Tech, half Alabama. And I don't know about you, but I was like, that's such a cool idea. You know what I mean? That's going to be great. You guys are having a great time. They were like, we're going to have a great time. Everyone's going to love us. Not, not just will one team love us, but both teams will love us. We're, we're going to have a great time, right? And you know what happened? The exact opposite happened. Everyone was mad at them. No one would, no one would like high five with them. Like, I don't, no, I, I'm, I'm serious, guys. Like, like, people were really upset with them. They were like, you need to pick a team. Which team are you rooting for? Like, if they went to high, they were like, who do we high five? If they went to high five someone when someone scored a touchdown, no one would, no one would slap hands with them. Like, get away from us. Like, you're, you're not on our team. And so actually, uh, it caused confusion and conflict. And at the very end of the game, a lot of drunk Alabama fans uh, said a lot of nasty things to them. It was, it was not great, right? And friends, I want you to see that when we See how close to the sin line we can inch with, with alcohol or with a boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever else. When we're lazy about a social media or a porn addiction, when, when you and I just coddle sin or, or we really long to like blend in with the world around us, we're jumbling our uniforms up. It's confusing, honestly. And, and I want to be clear, if you're in Christ... It's, your assured destiny is it being a part of these people in holy garments, pure, holy. It's secured by Christ's merit, not yours. But, but the more that you believe it, the more you look at this future picture of what you will be, it will change how you act now in holiness and purity and, and setting yourself apart as his people. Through this beautiful picture of a sovereign king, he's calmly sitting enthroned in power. He's confidently ruling, even amongst opposition, and he has an army that he invites us to fight with him in the future. And I love how these three verses are contrasted so beautifully uh, with the main focal verse, I think, of this psalm, which is verse 4. And we're going to see that our Emmanuel is the perfect priest in verse 4. The whole psalm pivots on this one verse. This is really the heart of the psalm, and I would argue in some ways the heart of our faith. Verse 4 says this, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, oh, well, let me stop there. The Lord has sworn and not change his mind. Okay, this, this psalm is a psalm full of promises. Like the word will is all over the place. Like this will happen, this will happen, this will happen. And then God comes in again to say something more. He, he says, I swear and won't change my mind. It's like a double promise 
on top of a promise. It's like the ultimate picky promise, in a sense. And what is this promise? Question verse 4. You ready? You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Doesn't it just warm your soul? I mean, like, nah. No, I honestly, ask anyone on the street, like, what does that even mean, right? Don't be guilty. It's okay. It's okay. I didn't hear any spiritual yummies in there, but um, I think rightly so. What does this all mean? This is very different than our context and our culture, right? What are, we don't have priests now. What is this order of priests? Who's this guy, Melchizedek? I haven't seen his name on the top 100 Christian baby names list. Although I think it should be. If anyone is expecting, I challenge you. This is your sermon application. Melchizedek. Uh, you can nickname Melky as the nickname. Melk? We'll, we'll come up with the nickname. We'll work on it. It's a great, it's a great, hopefully at the end of the sermon you'll be convinced. It's a great character. So consider it. Anyways. Friends, there, there's magnificence in this verse. But we have to dig for it a little bit. It's, it's not just right here on the surface. But it's so worth it because in understanding this mystery man, Melchizedek, we understand Jesus. And Melchizedek is going to take us all over the Bible. We're going to go to Genesis, to the Psalms, and to Hebrews. So I want to jump into Genesis. He basically just has a three-verse cameo on which so much of this rests. So the context for Genesis 3, we're going to, we're going to bounce there in a second, is that Abraham, he's considered to be the father of nations, the father of the faith, were for followers of God all around the world. He just experiences victory in a battle, and then he's having a victory party. And Melchizedek just comes out with this mysterious intrusion. It's in Genesis 14, 18 to 20. These are the only three verses that we see him in. I'm going um, to read it for you. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. So he came, he brought the party. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. And then he's gone. We never see him again. Uh, until really one verse in Psalms 110, and then Hebrews interprets these three verses uh, for a couple chapters. So right away, the, the initial reader of this, if you were an Old Testament, if you were a Jew reading this, you would have been shocked by this passage, putting, because, because of this reason. He was pushing together two offices, king and priest were becoming one. Now, in the Old Testament, in Israel, those were never pushed together. In fact, uh, one example is King Saul. If you were with us a couple years ago in the uh, Samuel series, King Saul tried to fulfill the priest's role, and actually because of that, God rejected him and kicked him out of his kingly role because he tried to push the two together. This would be like uh, Joe Biden being president, like the, the one sole judge on the Supreme Court and the sole decision maker in Congress. Um, as Kanye would say, no one man should have all that power, right? Which I would agree with. Uh, in the Old Testament, the king ruled the people justly under God's direction, bring order and peace and, and subdue chaos, right? And, and the priest had a whole different role. He, he mediated a relationship between a good God and, and a messy people. But this order of Melchizedek that we just read about is exceptional because it pushes together these two offices to king and priest. And up until now, 
There isn't a person that actually should have all that power. I'd agree with Kanye, but until Psalm 110. That there is one man that actually should and can and does have all that power and should. And he's the perfect priest. And the book of Hebrews, it interprets Genesis and gives us three reasons why this priest is the one suited for this role. First, it says that he is superior. Uh, to the Jewish reader, there was no one greater than Abraham. He was the man. He was uh, the, the one. Yet here in Genesis, Hebrews says that Abraham actually acknowledged Melchizedek as greater. He gave him a tithe, which means this, this guy is greater than me. And in Psalm 110, we actually see that this king priest is superior to David. David calls him my Lord. And other places in Hebrew, we see that this Messiah is superior to Moses. He's superior to angels. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews is, is this Messiah is superior. And friends, what this means is this perfect priest is the one and only one that can really carry the burden of your hopes, the weight of your hopes. The only one that can truly share your burdens. The only one that can truly meet your deepest need. Abraham couldn't. Moses couldn't. The angels could not and can't. Your spouse cannot. Your friends cannot. Your bank account cannot. That vacation coming up, that raise, that next degree cannot carry the weight of those things. There only is one, our perfect priest, Jesus, that always can. So he's superior. Secondly, he says he's eternal. God says in Psalm 110, I'm not going to change my mind. You're a priest forever. And the book of Hebrews takes us further to say that because Melchizedek, he basically said this in a book of genealogies, this guy doesn't have one. Genealogy is like, hey, this, here's where this guy came from. His mother and his father were this and this and this and this. And it's like this guy has no birth, no death, no genealogy. It just seems like he comes out of nowhere and then disappears. So it's, it's like he has no beginning or end. It's in Hebrews 7. You can go read it later. What it's saying is it's done, and it's done forever. When Psalm 110 was written 3,000 years ago, uh, it was done. Today, it's done. In the eternal future, it's done. He is a priest established forever. And why, is this, why does that matter? Why is that beautiful to us? Listen to Hebrews 7, verse 25. Consequently, the Messiah is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So from what's saying is today and tomorrow and for all time, the Messiah is interceding on your behalf, Christian. Your depression tomorrow is not going to change that. Your battle with sin will not deter him away from you until heaven is until heaven, he's the constant reminder of the once and for all perfect covering that saves you. And friends, you know this, but eternity is in our hearts. It's in your heart. In a world of fluctuation, of transition, of uncertainty, of corrosion, of breaking, our hearts long for the lasting, long for the eternal. Mine does, yours does. When death invades our lives, something is not right, just we feel it in our bones. When our bodies age and decay, something in our bones says, this is not right. When a beloved friend leaves and transitions to another place, even though that may be a great decision, or something in our soul just says, I wish this wouldn't be, I feel like this isn't right. It shouldn't be this way. And the reason why that is, is because our souls were made for an eternal hope. Only one that this perfect priest will give us. We have it fulfilled in him. And lastly, he's a perfect mediator. 
Hebrews unpacks this order of Melchizedek in Hebrews 7, and he says, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The perfect priest brings us close to God in a way that no one else ever could or ever will. Why? How? Because this priest king did something no one has, uh, no one will ever do for you. Especially not a king or a priest or a leader. He died for you. Romans 8 says, Who is to contend that Christ Jesus is the one who died? More than that, who was raised. Who's at, who's at the right hand of God? There's a right hand of God language again. Who is indeed interceding currently, present tense for us. Jesus is the only king that would die for his subjects. Re- rebellious ones at that, mind you. Jesus is the only priest who would say, hey, don't, you don't need to bring your offering. I will be my perfect life. I will die to be your offering for everything that you have done wrong in your life. I love how Andy Mineo says it. He's a hip-hop artist. He says, when, when did you ever hear about the hero dying for the villain? Just FYI, we're the villain. The hero Jesus died for us, the villains. The record of his perfect life, the offering of his perfect sacrifice, and the power of his pers- perfect resurrection are now given, handed over freely to you and me, undeserving sinners. And not only that, do you see what Jesus is doing at the right hand of God, at the throne of God as he's enthroned? Do you see what he's doing? He's interceding for us. What does that mean? At every turn of your life, at every sin and struggle, at every temptation and trial, Jesus is a present advocate for you, Christian, at the throne. He, it's, it's literally just he, he is at the throne of God with the Father saying, God, remember the perfect payment I made for that sin that just happened right there. Father, give, give the power, the, the life-giving resurrection power to that trial and temptation as they strive to follow you. Father, would you treat them as you, in this moment, treat them as you treat me, your beloved son, your one beloved son. He is constantly at the throne advocating, intercessing for you in that way. I mean, church, what a, what a friend. What an intercessor we have in Jesus. He's interceding on your behalf. What security you should have knowing that. He's a high priest, Hebrews later says, or Hebrews 4, that says he actually sympathizes with you in every struggle. I mean, he's, he's a great empathizer. What comfort we should have. He made one sacrifice, and now it's done. It's over. It's paid for. What rest you should have. And he's the perfect priest forever. What assurance we have. It will never change. Our security is is unchangeable in Christ. I love this. Uh, A prayer book describes the priestly work of Christ this way. He says, uh, the, the author says this about Christ being our perfect priest. He says, Christ was all anguish that we might be all joy. He was cast off that I might be brought in. He was trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcome in as a friend. He surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best. He was stripped that I might be clothed. He was wounded that I might be healed. He was a thirst that I might drink. He was tormented that I might be comforted. He was made a shame that I might inherit glory. And he entered darkness that I might have eternal life. And friend, if you're in Christ, you can pray that prayer. You can say that with all your heart, looking at our perfect priest who has already accomplished this work.
Who else is going to do that for you? <laughs> what, what other thing would we look to to be that for us? He fulfills all our current needs, friend, as our perfect priest, so we worship him. Lastly, I, I want to look at our Emmanuel is the victorious warrior. That's in verses 5 to 7. Uh, this last point is going to take us really from Hebrews to look to the end of the Bible, the uh, Revelation. This priest-king's enthronement is really a prelude to what will actually come. A lot of this was covered in Psalm 2 a couple weeks ago, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. Um, so I'm going to take this a little bit more briefly. We'll go a little less time on this point three. And there's, again, there's three promises you're going to see here. The first one is that he will destroy evil. Look at verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. There's that right-hand language again. And he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. So this, this language is reminiscent of lots of revelation language, but particularly in verse 17 where the evil nations oppose Jesus. And it says in verse 14 of chapter 17 that, um, that the nations will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them. It's talking about the Messiah, Jesus. Friends, the day is coming where all the kingdoms of the earth will be overcome by the kingdom of heaven and all who oppose the priest king will face ruin. There'll be no contest. Victory is inevitable. Secondly, he will judge the nations. Verse 6, this Messiah will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, and he will shatter chiefs over the wider. So this is a heavy passage, but I want to show you why it's still good news. The priest king's justice will be universal, the whole world. And we can shy away from this word judge, um, but we really long for a good judge to execute, to bring justice to a world that is full of injustice. In a world with evil and injustice and bias and overlooking the poor and hunger and unjust wars, we long for a God that loves to bring about justice. In my, um, I'm working on this with my oldest daughter a little bit. Um, probably all of us do this, but to, especially when you're young, it's really easy to be like, I need to, I need to fight tooth and nail to be justified. If I was wrong, I need everyone to know about it, and it will be made right. And, and we struggle with that still as adults, right? But there's something that this truth does to that. It, it, lay, it, it chills that out. To say, hey, I, I know that I will not experience perfect justice in this world. And a lot of it's because of me. But I know that I have a God of victorious word who is coming to make all things right. To, to do away with evil. And so I don't have to fight to justify myself all the time. I can just look at him and see and hope in his coming that he'll make all things right. Thirdly, his victory is certain. This is the last one. A little more obscure verse. Verse 7 says, He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he'll lift up his head. So the picture here is a warrior. A warrior. Victorious after battle, taking like a refreshing drink. I don't know for you, it might be Gatorade, Red Bull. For me, it's probably a latte. He's lifting up his head and enjoying the victory. What this verse is saying is the outcome's assured. It's as good as done. Jesus will lift up his head and triumph over every victory over every evil the world has ever been plagued by. This victory will be final, and the spoils of it will be lasting forever for those that follow him. And friend, this is really important because Jesus can lift up his head. We get to lift up our heads as well. When we're struggling, when you're discouraged, when you are bent over with shame, we're to look at this victorious word and say that we are, what the scriptures say, that we are more than conquerors, not on our own, but through Christ who loved us. Now, we start with this last point of wrath and justice towards evil and the Messiah killing the wicked, and I think we should wrestle with that. But, but friends, wrath 
and destruction of evil is the only way that heaven gets ushered in, where nothing unclean or ungodly or ungood can ever enter it. And the psalm has this word, will, over and over and over again. This psalm is meant to evoke a longing from us, a hope, a groaning even at times for the promises of God, for these promises to be fulfilled. And if you look around your lives, I think you should be filled with the longing for these promises to be fulfilled. I just took a moment just to jot down a long list of things, not even in our world, but just in my direct sphere and lots of you of just things that have just things that ought not be have been happening this week. Um, there, was, there was one night uh, just a few days ago where an attender came over who's in the medical field, and she was just distraught because she had um, just watched someone, a very young person, die on the table. And um, I know so many of you in the medical field, you see it all the time. You rub up against the brokenness of, of death. Another sweet sister in our church suddenly lost a family member in a, in a free car accident. Um, another family member of mine is in, in process of passing away. My, uh, I've been just burdened by my own feelings this week of, of lukewarmness and apathy. Um, just this week, I, I met someone with just a really heartbreaking story on the street who was homeless uh, from another country. Um, man, there's been so many porch pirates stealing my packages this week. I don't know if it's like Christmas or what. It's been... I, I, I have a really long list. I'm not going to keep going, but friends, you have a long list of things you see around your life and in your life of things that ought not be, of things that are evidence of the brokenness that we're in. And friends, we, our souls really long for these, the enemies of sin and death and Satan to, to be destroyed, a day where young people will not die on the table, where parents will only rejoice, a day where car accidents will be a mist and a memory, Man, a day where my own sin will be exchanged for impenetrable holiness and goodness and my apathy will be in, just evaporated away by the sight of Jesus, where homelessness will be an unknown word and an unknown concept. We're, Lord willing, I don't know if it's in the Bible, but packages won't get stolen. I, please, Lord Jesus, like, love to have them all there. Anyways, friends, the, the sad things become untrue. Jesus wins, and all that are with him will win. He's the, he's the sovereign king of our hearts. He's the empathetic high priest who ministers to our souls every need. He's the victorious warrior who ushers in victory, the victory we need over sin and death and evil. And I love these portraits because there's so much beauty when you overlay these things with the Messiah in the manger. This king, this sovereign king, was born into a shabby manger, poor, needy, rough clothes. This priest, to, to meet our needs, was was born in need, needing to be raised, needing to be fed, needing to be taught a trade, needing to be, have diapers changed. This victorious warrior was born weak, fragile, on the run from a worldly king. Why? What does it show us? I think it's wrapped up in this word, Emmanuel. God with us, that the, the God of the universe, the God of all power, of all power, of all knowledge, of all might and glory came and just moved in. What was among us, moved into our neighborhood, as one translation of the Bible says. Friends, God has come to live among us. The king is amongst his people. The, the priest invites us into his family forever. The warrior fights on your behalf. And if you're here and this is new news to you or you haven't 
follow Jesus, if you're not a Christian here, I hope the one thing you hear is just an invitation. There is no one you are going to meet that's more worthy of giving your life to than this God, than this priest king. And right now I want you to hear that you are on the wrong side of the battle with this, this king. But you can have him as your savior, not as your judge. Christ offers you his perfect life as your reputation. Christ offers you to be his access to God's family forever. And so Christians, we rejoice. We have contentment and joy at the first advent because our perfect priest has come. And right now, you have every grace you need. You have everything you need right now in him. But we also, we groan. We long for the second advent where our sovereign king, our victorious warrior, will come to defeat evil that plagues his kingdom and we'll reign with him together. And that's why we can sing so many of these, these um, Christmas songs, these beautiful Christmas hymns that have the tension, right, of both um, rejoicing and contentment, but also longing, like this one. It says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns, mourning, longing, in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. But listen to this, rejoice. Rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. So we rejoice, church. We long with our souls. Come, come, Lord Jesus. Come, our Emmanuel. Let's pray and thank Him for these promises. Father, we come to You thankful that the Holy Spirit has given us just an ability to pick up a landline and listen in on this sacred conversation. God, thank You that You reveal Yourself to us. Let us not make it light, take it lightly. And God, we even, just, just now, I even confess, as I have been expounding on these words, that my thoughts of you are just so often way too low. So God, in our minds and our hearts, would you exalt Jesus? Would you exalt the priest king in our hearts? God, thank you that you are, that your work, your person, everything you've done, you, you are meeting our current needs. Everything we need, we have in you. I thank you that you're interceding on everyone that's behalf, that, that, that has followed you, that is following you, that claims uh, your name. And God, I, I pray against shame, against ungodly guilt, against people being bent over with shame and neutralized because we've forgotten that you're interceding on our behalf. God, thanks that we wear the reputation, the, the purity, the, uh, the garments of Christ because of your work on the cross. And when we live that out? Will we live out lives that are distinct from the world, that invite other people in? And God, help us be a church that groans. Help us be a church that longs. It's okay to just, to just long for heaven. It's good even to, to long and groan for our sovereign king, our victorious warriors to return. God, thanks that you are coming. Thanks that it's not if, but when. And God, even this Christmas season, with that hope, Magnify in our hearts. Send us out as your people, in your namesake. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church podcast.